Well, as we come to the Word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh God in heaven, we do want to come and adore you. We have done that this morning. We have sung of your praises. We have worshipped you for who you are. We have worshipped Christ for who he is and what he came to do. And now we want to continue our adoration as we open your word, as we hear the words of Jesus. May you cause his word to penetrate our hearts. May you help us to be humbled before this humble king, that we might be changed into his image. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, the account, the account is told of two uh, battleships that were at sea on a training maneuver when they came across some heavy weather for several days. And as night fell, the visibility was poor with patchy fog. And so the captain, wanting to make sure all was good for his the ship, he remained on the bridge, keeping an eye on all the activities, making sure they were steering the ship rightly through this night and fog. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing reported, light bearing on the starboard bow. The captain called out, is it steady or moving astern? The lookout replied, steady, captain, which meant they were on a dangerous collision course with the ship. The captain then called to the signalman, signal that ship. We are on a collision course. Advise you change course 20 degrees. Back came the signal. Advisable for you to change your course 20 degrees. The captain said, send this. I am a captain. Change your course 20 degrees. I am a seaman, second class, came the reply. You had better change course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was understandably furious. He spat out, send, I am a battleship, change your course 20 degrees. Back came the flashing light, I am a lighthouse. <laughs> the battleship changed course very quickly. Well, we know that lighthouses are built in order to inform the impending danger that ships will face if they don't change course. The rocky shorelines on which they are placed uh, pose a real threat for ships and for their crews. In the dark, they are unable to see what lies in those waters, what lurks there before them. Without the warning of the lighthouse, they will certainly run aground and sink. Well, the Bible makes it clear that it's possible for those who are in the church to make shipwreck of their faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, Paul says that some people, by rejecting the truth of the gospel, have made shipwreck of their faith, he says. That's a direct quote. They have made shipwreck of their faith. And so we need to ask, what causes spiritual shipwrecks? Well, there are a number of dangers that lurk in the spiritual waters for, uh, that can threaten the lives of Christians. These dangers lurk close by the church. They can be imperceptible at times. Christians can be distracted by other things and not see them. And like a ship cruising the waters on a stormy night, we can fail to notice the very things that may cause shipwreck 
to our faith. Last week we began looking at a passage in Luke chapter 22 which serves as a lighthouse for us. It began to warn us of impending dangers. And so I invite you to turn there this morning if you haven't already to Luke chapter 22. If you don't have a copy of God's Word this morning, you can find it on a pew rack in the Bible in the pew rack right in front of you on page 1048. And it's as we said last week, in these verses, the hearts of the disciples are put on full display. Jesus had just instituted the Last Supper. He had taught them that He intended to give His life, to shed His blood for them, and thus inaugurate the New Covenant. But Luke then records upon Jesus instituting this Lord's Supper, describing his own death for his disciples, that then Luke records Judas's response and the, disciple, the other 11 disciples as well. And it's in this exchange with Judas and with the other 11 disciples that we learn of these two spiritual dangers that we began to look at last week and these spiritual dangers that we need to learn to detect for our own lives. And so let's follow along as I read. I want to begin this morning by beginning in verse 14, and then we'll continue on to verse 30. So begin in verse 14 with me in Luke chapter 22. It says, when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, and is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom." that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God impress its truths on all our hearts. Well, as I said earlier, and as we looked at last week, the verses that we have before us, verses 21 through 30, reveal the disciples' hearts. After we've already seen Jesus' heart revealed, we now see the disciples' heart revealed. And in their hearts being revealed, we learn about two dangers to our spiritual lives. And in particular, we began to see last week two spiritual dangers that we must seek to detect in our own hearts so that we will not fall prey to these dangers. We need to see these dangers revealed in this text so that we would not 
fall prey so that we would detect them as well. And last week, we began to look at the first one, which the first danger that we see here is the danger of spiritual apostasy, the danger of spiritual apostasy. And we saw this in verses 21 through 23. Again, he, Jesus here, after describing his own heart for his disciples, his own blood poured out for them, he then switches in verses 20, 21 and begins to talk about Judas. He's not named here, but we know from earlier in the chapter that the one who was to betray Jesus was Judas. And he calls him out. He says, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. He calls Judas out in particular for his defection. Judas had been with Jesus for three and a half years. He had heard all of the teaching. He had seen all of the miracles. He had even participated in the ministry. Jesus had sent him out to, to uh, cast out demons and to teach. And yet now, in this crucial hour, Judas's true colors are revealed. He is the defector. He is the traitor. He never truly believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And now, when the opportunity presented itself, he chose money over the Messiah, and he betrayed Jesus. And as we saw in Judas, we have the most famous apostate, the most famous apostate. Apostate simply means one who has fallen away, one who has departed and so we use the term apostasy to describe those who once identified with the Christian faith, those who once followed the teachings of the Bible and now have rejected them and now have fall, fallen away and walked away from Christ. And so in light of what we saw here in Judas and the warning that Jesus gave to Judas, we talked about three important truths regarding apostasy that I just want to review for you this morning. And the first we said that no Christian can lose their salvation. They're secure in Christ. Jesus said explicitly in John chapter 10, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. And so believers can be certain that they are secure in Jesus. But secondly, the New Testament calls every believer to examine himself or herself. We cannot uh, assume, we must continue to examine ourselves to make sure we're in the faith. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He said, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves or you, do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And so we need to continue to examine ourselves, we need to make sure that we are not deceived, make sure that we are truly trusting in Christ because it's possible for people to spend years, decades around the Bible, decades around the church, decades in Bible studies, decades sitting under sermons and yet not truly believe and not truly know Christ. It's a tragedy and we therefore are called upon to examine ourselves. And the example of Judas is a stern warning for us to do that very thing. But the promise that we, in the third truth that we looked at regarding apostasy is that there's no one beyond the reach of God's grace. There's no hopeless case. 
I believe here in which Jesus said, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus is, yes, condemning and pronouncing a certain judgment upon Judas, but I believe in this final note of judgment, he is also giving a word of grace, a warning to Judas to say woe to you if you go forward with this. I believe there was still a chance for Judas to repent. Now, we get into the what ifs. Well, what if he did repent? What would have happened to the cross and all of that? We can't play that out. We don't know what would have happened. But I believe that that was still given to Judas here. Jesus hadn't given up on Judas. And therefore, we can take comfort that he hasn't given up on anyone else who is still living and breathing and can hear the gospel. And so we saw that apostasy can lurk in the water. It can be around why the New, it's why the New Testament uh, warns that we uh, not be uh, driven away by unbelief, that we not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to heed the lighthouse of this text and watch out for apostasy that might creep up, unbelief that might creep up in our own hearts in small ways that it may not give way to greater unbelief. But there's a second danger in this text that we need to be on the lookout for, and And we see this in verses 24 through 30. The second danger of this text is the danger of selfish ambition. First was the danger of spiritual apostasy, but the second danger here is the danger of selfish ambition that we see in verses 24 through 30. Now, I need to be clear up front here that these two dangers, in one sense, are not on equal footing. They're not, don't often have the same effect in someone's life. They do not cause equal damage. I mean, think about even the the different characters that we're talking about here. The first danger we see in the life of Judas. This was one who who walked away from Jesus and ultimately was judged and condemned because of his unbelief. He remained in unbelief and he died in condemnation. But here, this second danger of selfish ambition we see in the lives of the disciples, the, the remaining 11 that were there at the table. And while this is a danger and while this Uh, can wreak havoc in a believer's life and particularly in spiritual leadership, it's not something that necessarily is going to cause someone to go out of the race, cause someone to be condemned as Judas was. And so we need to recognize there are bumps in the road and there are are, are icebergs that will sink us. And so we need to recognize here that that apostasy is like that iceberg that sunk the Titanic. It's a danger that will take someone out of the race that will cause someone to go to hell. Selfish ambition, on the other hand, is more of a debilitating danger than a deadly one. More of a debilitating danger than a deadly one. Unchecked, though, selfish ambition unchecked, it could be the cause of someone's downfall. But on its own, it could simply injure you in your spiritual race. And again, we see this even laid out here by the nature of Judas and the other 11 disciples. But the reality is, is both of these are a danger. Both of these are a, a cause for us uh, that we need to be, be watching out for. It can be a threat that we need to be vigilant towards. And so selfish ambition is a, a common disease that, is, that has uh, been found in the church ever since this first century. It's easy for uh, our own hearts to exalt themselves. This is the idea that we want to clamor for greatness. We want to see ourselves as great. And again, this is not something just exclusive to the 11 disciples there in the upper room. This is not just something for the first century. This is something that we all struggle with even here in our own day. And so it's 
instructive and encouraging that we see that this was a problem even among Jesus' own men there on this night before the cross. The disciples struggled with this same thing. Well, we see this danger of selfish ambition in this passage addressed in three ways. First, we see selfish ambition identified. We see selfish, secondly, selfish ambition condemned. And thirdly, we see selfless service commended. And so let's look first of all at selfish ambition identified. Selfish ambition identified. Look at verse 24 with me. It says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. It's amazing to read this, isn't it? It's amazing to read this at any point amongst Jesus' disciples while they are following the Savior, but it's particularly amazing and shocking to read it on this night, to read it right before the cross, to read it right after Jesus has just described how his body would be given for them and how his blood will be poured out for them. And yet, what are they doing? Are their eyes upon the Savior? Are their eyes worshiping the greatness of the man who sits before them, who's about to sacrifice himself for them? Are they inspired by his gift of sacrifice? No. Instead, they're looking at themselves. They're arguing about who's the greatest. Who's king of the hill? Who deserves the most recognition? Who deserves the most accolades? We can, it's, it's amazing to read that it arose even on this night. Luke's the only one that records this exchange here in the upper room. They were jockeying for positions in the kingdom. The kingdom is all through this text. Jesus had just given the Olivet Discourse that we saw in chapter 21, right? Talking about the coming kingdom and how it's going to come in great fanfare. And then here in the upper room, Jesus had said that he's not going to eat of this meal or drink of this cup again until the coming of his kingdom. And so they begin uh, to debate about who's the greatest. Interestingly, verse 23 says they begin to question one another who had committed the betrayal. So in other words, who's the worst of us? And then the discussion turned to who's the greatest of us? Well, it couldn't be me to betray because, you know, I'm actually the greatest disciple. I mean, the audacity is shocking. They were concerned at who would be, look at it, verse 24, who is to be regarded as the greatest. Regarded as the greatest. They wanted to take the top spot, not only to be in the top spot, but to be noticed to be in the top spot. Now, again, this isn't the first time that this has arisen. Matthew chapter 20 and Mark chapter 10 record an earlier dispute, a dispute along the same lines. That, you'll remember, was brought on by James and John and uh, their, his, their mother, um, asking about uh, they, if they could sit at the right and left hand of Jesus in his kingdom. They wanted seats of honor in the kingdom even then. And so it's not hard again to think that after all this talk of the kingdom, that this is what's on the disciples' mind. They did not understand the cross that was truly coming. Even though Jesus made it so clear, their eyes were set on temporal glory. Their eyes were sent on the praise of men. And again, we can scold them for their impropriety. We can be shocked we can say, what were you thinking, disciples? How could you be so dull? 
And yet, if we're honest, the very seeds that were found in the disciples' heart for this kind of ambition, selfish ambition, is found in each one of our hearts as well. We are not immune from wanting this kind of regard. We are not immune from craving for the praise of men. We all know that this exists within us. This is the primal pride that is found within humanity, that we see ourselves as great, and we want to be regarded as great. Now, we may not all want to be great in the same area or category, but there's some category for you that you've got skill, you've got talent, you've got something that you want to be regarded great for. It's something that we all struggle with. It's something that we all have. That we want to be regarded as the greatest in that particular category. Sure, we might concede that someone else is greater somewhere else, but at least we've, over here, we know that we're the greatest in this area. And this is what the Bible calls selfish ambition. It's the ambition to elevate ourselves. And this is pride, clear and simple, and it's this pride that is our great enemy of our Christian life. It is this great pride that keeps people from repenting and believing in the gospel. They don't want to admit that they are sinners. They don't want to admit the fact that they are fallen. And so in their pride, they remain in their stubborn opinion. But it's this pride that also keeps us from growing as Christians. It's this selfish ambition that keeps us from truly wanting to grow, to repent of the sin that we see creeping up in our lives and to continue to surrender and submit to Jesus. The eminent British pastor John Stott once wrote this. He said, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Pride is our greatest enemy, and humility is our greatest friend. We must remember this, brothers and sisters, that this is the very thing that is there attacking us at every level. It is there, this, this that keeps us from going further in Christ is because of our own pride, and it is humility that is our greatest friend. Of course, we know how to spot pride pretty well in other people. Right? Doesn't it stink when that prideful person walks in the room and they start spouting off and you just kind of go, whoa, I just can't even, that person is so full of themselves. And yet the, the, the sad reality is we could be so full of ourselves and we don't even notice. We don't even sense it. It can be a total blind spot for us. This is the nature of pride, right? We elevate ourselves and we put down other people. And so even in the sense of assessing our own pride, we elevate ourselves. We're more humble. We're farther along. We can be disgusted by the pride of others, but we have no qualms with our own selfish ambition. We somehow justify it. We find it to be holy. This is what God wants, right? This is why he gifted me this way. And yet this is a common feature of humanity. And so therefore, we must recognize that you and I are just as susceptible as anybody else to commit this sin of selfish ambition. It's not a matter of whether you have pride. It's a question of how your pride manifests itself in your life. Let me say that again. It's not a question of whether you have pride. It's a question of where does your pride manifest itself. We need to pray that the Lord would continue to reveal to us where that is. 
that we might know where we might put that sin to death. And so I ask for you, do you know right now where it is that your pride manifests itself? Do you know where it is that your selfish ambition manifests itself? What are the categories, what are the areas in your life that causes you to think that you are far above others and should be regarded as such? If you're honest, where does your heart crave for recognition? Friends, to begin to identify that is the beginning of the path of life. Because we humble our heart and we say, yes, Lord, I do crave for recognition there. Yes, I do want to be regarded as greatest there. That is why I had that thought against that other person. That is why I put them down in my mind or put them down in my words. It was because I thought myself to be greater than them. We've got to learn to be honest with ourselves aware this pride creeps up. Because if we aren't, then we're never able to put it to death. We can't ever apply the blood of Christ to that. We can't ever repent of it and see change. We can't ever see growth and humility. And this selfish ambition will continue to keep us hampered in our Christian life. And so Jesus, first of all, we've got to first identify this selfish ambition. It was identified very clearly that night amongst the disciples, but we've got to identify it in our own lives. But Jesus has a message for all of us. And that is, and we see Jesus here in the second way he addresses this by, by talking about selfish ambition condemned. Selfish ambition condemned. And he, he condemns this in verses 25 and into the first part of 26. And so look at that, that verse with me. He says, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Stop right there. Jesus here beginning to address this. I mean, you could imagine the different ways that Jesus could go about talking about such blatant pride that's now circulating around the table. He has just described, just declared that, there was, uh, that he was gonna sacrifice himself. He's just described that there's, there's one of them who has betrayed them. And so I could imagine him getting quite frustrated that these guys have now turned it on themselves and have no thought or no regard for Christ. But I believe that the way he addresses this here is quite a gentle rebuke, quite a mild rebuke in the way that he goes about this. He does it by drawing a comparison. The Gentiles lead this way, but that's not the way that you're supposed to lead. This is the way it works out in the world, but in the church it's supposed to work this way, in other words. And so he first here in verse 25 describes worldly leaders. He he talks about what greatness looks like in the secular world, in the unbelieving world. And particularly, the, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship. They have this domineering style of lordship. They lord it over those who are under them. But on top of that, what's the title that they give themselves? They call themselves benefactors. Benefactors. The, in other words, the worldly leaders... Are, are domineering, they are all controlling, and yet they believe that they're doing good for the people under them. They rule to benefit themselves, but then they try to convince the populace that they only have the, best pe the people's best interest in mind. In other words, their tyranny is often masked by freebies. 
Now, there's a record in the ancient world of leaders calling themselves benefactors. The uh, Ptolemy III of Egypt gave him this title of benefactor, and uh, Emperor Vespasian was, was hailed as the benefactor of Rome. And so Jesus here is saying that these, these great emperors and leaders, they called themselves benefactors even though they lorded it over, they domineered over the people that they were there to lead. Of course, recent times uh, have given us many examples of those who are tyrants and yet they do not lead for the good of the people under them. Go back to the 20th century and we have men like Joseph Stalin who was leading the communist revolution in in the USSR, in Russia, which became USSR, he claimed to bring communism. This is good for the masses. We're going to level everything out. But he ended up killing, by some estimates, 20 million of his own people. Or take Mao Zedong, the communist ruler of China in the 20th century, whose policies resulted in the murder of 45 million Chinese. Now, these men may have claimed that they, to do what was best for the people and for their nation, but they're really only serving their own craving for power. And so Jesus makes it clear that this way in which the world leads, how does he start verse 26? But not so with you. But not so with you. There's a contrast here. That way of leading, that way of, of, of trying to put yourself up over others is not to be identified within the church. And so I believe there's a direct application here to church leaders that in the church, there is no place for selfish ambition or domineering leadership. And yet, unfortunately, the history of the the church has shown that its leaders have often disregarded these words. I think you only need to look to the office of the Pope in the Roman Catholic Church down through the centuries to see this modeled. He held, the men that held that post believed to saying that they're doing it for the benefit of the masses who are under him and yet held them in spiritual bondage, extracting millions upon millions of dollars from the supplicants. But let, before we start pointing fingers at the Catholic Church, we need to recognize that in Protestant churches and evangelical churches in our own nation that domineering, selfish leaders have been found as well. Men can use their positions of authority for self-serving purposes. Recent scandals have revealed high-profile pastors to have led their churches with an iron fist, seeking to use politics and backroom pressure in order to make things go their way. The evidence has shown them to be self-absorbed and more concerned about their public promotion than about the good of their flock. And Jesus' words says, but not so with you. It should not be so. I have to think that Peter, one of the apostles, was there that night, very well pulled into this clamoring for arguing that he was the greatest apostle, that he deserved the greatest regard. And... And he, when he, years later, when he had the opportunity to write to church leaders, when the opportunity to write to pastors and elders, he says this in 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter got it. Peter understood 
that this wasn't, isn't to be a, a role about selfish promotion, but it's about service. Oh, there's still leadership. There's some people that look at the corruption of leadership and said, we need to get rid of leadership altogether. We need to have no one in authority. That's not what the Bible teaches. There's still to be exercising oversight. There's still to be a shepherding function. But the way that it's to be gone about is not by domineering, not by lording it over those under them, but rather to be examples, to be selfless, not selfish. But friends, this is not just a temptation of pastors, even though it is a temptation of pastors. This temptation of selfish ambition can infect people of the congregation at all levels of the body of Christ. Selfish ambition can be there if you're for whatever leadership position you might have, whatever ministry you might lead, however big or small, you want to be regarded as great. Or we're not even in leadership, we're just serving and we want to be regarded as great for serving in that role. And it's possible for those that aren't in any leadership or aren't serving at all, but to still be envious of those who are serving or those who are in leadership and that they would get the regard of what those others get. Friends, this selfish ambition can infect all of us, but Jesus says very clearly, it should not be so among his people. And so we need to ask ourselves again, where do we see selfish ambition and pride rising up in our hearts? Where do we feel the desire to be noticed and to be recognized? Maybe even particularly because of our, our, our spiritual qualifications or the spiritual service that we render. It is amazing the way that our selfish and fleshly hearts can take things that are so good, Christian ministry and Christian service, and co-opt it and turn it in order to try to shine the spotlight on us instead of shine the spotlight on Jesus. It's so insidious. Our motives can be so mixed, and we've got to be on the lookout for the, it rising up. Jesus will make clear that the desire to be great is not wrong, but it is a desire to be great through boastful advancement that is wrong. It's a fleshly, worldly pride that should have no place in the people of God. He's provided a way for us to be great, but it's not through the praise of others. And so Jesus teaches us a different way. And that's what we'll turn to now in the second half of verse 26. We've seen selfish ambition identified, condemned. Let's now look at the converse, selfless service commended. Selfless service commended. And we see this in the end of verse 26 through the end of 30. Jesus commends selfless service to us in, in three ways. And he does this first of all in verse 26, he commands selfless service. So he commends to us that we are to be about this and he does it first by commanding us that we're to do it. This is, this is the what must be done amongst us, amongst the church. Verse 26, he says, but not so with you, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. And then he asks a question, verse 27, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? Here in verses 26 and 27, we have Jesus commanding us, let the greatest among you become, 
The greatest, in other words, you could translate it, the greatest among you must become as the youngest. The leader among you must become as one who serves. And so it's, I think it's important to realize that Jesus doesn't try to dissuade us away from desiring greatness. There's something in us that desires to be great, and he shows us the path forward to do that rather than dissuading us from that desire altogether. He wants us to think differently about greatness. In the church, through the gospel, through the lens of Christ, everything is flipped upside down. It's not through self-promotion, but through self-abasement. Not through self-advancement, but through self-abasement. It's not through serving self, but through serving others that greatness comes. And I believe here he gives us then two keys to this true greatness. He, he commands us first to think lowly of ourselves, to think differently. We need to think lowly of ourselves. That's why he says here in verse 26, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. He says, first of all, we must become as the youngest. In that society, and we can somewhat understand this, even if societies may have changed a bit, that the youngest it was shown the least regard. The youngest were, were called to, to do the chores, to do the work that, that the older you got, the more seniority you got, and therefore, the more you could tell others what to do. But Jesus says here that if you want to be great, you need to take that position of the youngest. You need to step into your ministry. You need to step into the place to serve as if you were the youngest one as if you were essentially taking the least respected and the least recognized position, the one that wouldn't turn heads when you walked in the room. And so Jesus is instructing his disciples to voluntarily think of themselves in that role. Obviously, they're not going to be the youngest, but they should regard themselves as the youngest. They are not to have the mentality that they are at the top and therefore others deserve to, should serve them, but rather they should think of themselves at the bottom and they are there to serve others. And so Jesus, I believe in this, is calling each one of us to be humble in mind and heart. He wants us to take on the disposition of the youngest, the immature, to, to see ourselves as least deserving of praise, to have lowliness of mind. Rather than exalting ourselves as, as our sin nature is prone to do, we must lower ourselves. And it begins in the mind. It begins with our perspective. Before we, we walk out in humility and begin to serve people, we must begin to think differently about ourselves in relation to other people. It's so easy in our culture to be nice in public society. And that goes for the church. We put on a smile. We don't criticize. But we secretly, internally, consider ourselves better than others. Oh, that's nice but we secretly have prideful thoughts. We judge others as they pass by. We walk away from a conversation rolling our eyes. Can't believe what they just said. I would never say something like that. We say something like the Pharisees in Luke 18. Lord, thank you that I'm not like that person. Our pride can surface not only in those sort of uh, outright ways, but they can also, our pride can also surface in our neglect of other people. This is where I find myself so guilty. We simply don't think of them because we're too busy thinking of ourselves. It's not like, oh, I thought of you and I thought, no, I'm not going to serve them. It's just I'm so busy with my own stuff, I don't even spend time to think about others. 
We, we end up being like the character of Greek mythology, Narcissus, who spent his time staring at his own reflection so that he noticed no one else. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says this ought not to be so. Not so among you. Jesus says we must consider ourselves as the youngest. And I believe it's this very point that Paul picked up and therefore instructed the church in in Philippians chapter 2, which Seth read for us earlier. Philippians 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This, we must regard others as more significant. We must, in humility, regard others, count others as more significant, and therefore do nothing, he says, from selfish ambition or conceit. Friends, this is something we never graduate from. Ask the senior saints in the room. This isn't something that uh, a class we ever pass. Our pride never dies until our body does. Until we're laid in the grave or Christ returns, we will never cease from striving. But until then, we must continue to repent of our pride and think lowly of ourselves. It is only in this do we find true greatness in the eyes of God. We are looking for the approval of the Lord. We are not looking for the approval of man. We are not looking for the praise of crowds. We are looking for the praise of Christ. Amen? So let us ask that God's Spirit would continue to humble us and give us that lowly perspective that we might think differently about our position within the body of Christ and amongst those we serve. But there's a second key to true greatness. Not only do we think lowly of ourselves, but we serve others. We are to serve others. Jesus, further pressing this point about who is the greatest, not only does he say you need to think about yourself as the youngest or as the one who serves, he says he had, in a series of questions in verse 27, he says, for who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? In other words, if you were to walk into a room and you were to see someone there holding a tray of food who's serving the people or the people that are at the table eating, and particularly there could be other nice paraphernalia around that would indicate the, the, the dignity of the person eating, but you recognize that the person serving is serving the one who's eating. And Jesus says it's clear that the one who's, who's eating, reclining at table, is the greater one, is seen in the eyes of the world to be the greater one. But Jesus wants us to think differently. He says that we are to be the ones who serve. And so he acknowledges that naturally greatness is determined by position. We are hardwired to be able to look and to see that the person at the microphone is greater than the person who's standing back behind him. We know the person that's in the throne is greater than the person who's attending them next to the throne. We can tell by position who is the greater one in the eyes of the world. But Jesus turns greatness upside down. In the church, he wants us to think differently about greatness. To be great doesn't mean that you have many people waiting around you, meeting your wants and whims. To be great, rather, means that you've rolled up your sleeves and you're busy in the work of serving others, meeting the needs of the people around you. And so Jesus, I believe, makes it crystal clear that among his people, service is to be what defines the church? We are not to see the church as a place to advance our name, but a place to serve others to advance the name of Jesus. We, want, we all want to be great. Again, this is an inherent desire that we are hardwired to do. None of us want to be insignificant or to be forgotten. All of us want to be noticed at some level. And that inherent desire 
pulled away from our flesh is not bad, but Jesus makes it clear that the path to true greatness is through humble service. And so I ask you, how are you obeying the words of Jesus to be about humble service? How are you in serving? How are you serving? Where are you serving? How are you serving others? How are you serving the master? Are you ministering to advance the name of Jesus within the body of Christ as you meet the needs of other people? Jesus says we must think lowly of ourselves and we must serve. But the linchpin of this paragraph is in the last line here of verse 27. And it brings us to the second way that Jesus commends selfless service. He commends it to us by commanding selfless service, but secondly, he models selfless service. And look at the last line of verse 27. He says, but I am among you as the one who serves. I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus gave us the supreme example of service. And this is humbling and sobering to us as we read it. It should be. Jesus, the Son of God, the one who existed in eternity past and lived with the glory of the Father, humbled himself and came upon this earth to serve. He came to serve sinful humanity, selfish disciples, and ungrateful sinners. And so when we come to the example of Christ, friends, we come upon holy ground in which we have the holy God coming to serve sinful humanity. Our sovereign Lord stooping to the lowest level. There's three ways in which we see his modeling. The first is what we celebrate here at Christmas, and that is his incarnation. Jesus modeled selfless service in his incarnation. That means that he took on flesh. He dwelt among us, as John chapter 1 says. Or to continue, Philippians 2, which we read part of earlier, it says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. This is the wonderful reality that we celebrate at Christmas. The the sovereign God, almighty maker of heaven and earth, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he came, he took on the form of a servant. He came in the likeness of human flesh. He came and identified with us. He took on our flesh and blood that he might walk among us. In the Christmas story, we As we look at the baby in the manger, we should see the humility of our Lord, to see that he descended from heaven to take on the form of man, but he didn't just show up as a man. He showed up as a baby, a helpless little baby, and he wasn't born to the highest nobility on earth. He was born to a virgin peasant woman, to the lowest of society. But we not only see Jesus model his service in his incarnation, we see him modeling service in the washing of his disciples' feet. And we don't have time to turn there this morning, but you can write down John 13 to carefully read through that narrative. Jesus, there as they're in the middle of the supper, gets up, takes, takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around himself, kicks up a wash basin and goes from disciple to disciple and washes their dirty, dusty feet. That was reserved for servants. It is never done by the host. And yet Jesus there modeling, he explicitly says, I'm doing this as an example for you that you might serve each other. Jesus modeled there on that very night what selfless service looked like. And so when he says here, I am among you as the one who serves, the disciples knew exactly what he was talking about. 
They had just witnessed it. They had just experienced it. His hands on their feet. They knew that he was the Savior who serves. But the most eminent way that we see him modeling service is in his cross. And that's the third way we see him model selfless service. And that is his cross. In Mark chapter 10, the disciples had a similar dispute about greatness. And Jesus there in that passage made this remarkable statement. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, I didn't come to be served. I came simply to serve. And then he gives the preeminent example of that service to give his life as a ransom for many, which we knew would result, we now know would result in the cross. His life paid the penalty for those who were his enemies. And so the foremost illustration of Christ's humility is in his giving of himself upon the cross. He voluntarily went to the cross so that sinners could be forgiven. Sinners like you and I. In other words, how did he serve his people? He served by giving his life for them. Paul, continuing his description of Jesus' humility in Philippians 2, says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And friends, this is the great irony of the passage here in Luke 22. Jesus is hours away from going to the cross. And yet he, here are his disciples arguing about who is the greatest. Again, the contrast couldn't be greater. You have Jesus whose selfless service is going to be demonstrated in the most profound way as if it hadn't been demonstrated already in a, in a huge way by his incarnation, by his foot washing, and by the rest of his life. But then it's going to be shown in the most imminent way in the cross. They have been told that, and yet their minds are on themselves. And so Jesus mildly rebukes them and encourages them to look to his example. And so I ask you this morning, do you have your sights set upon Christ? Jesus who has served you? Jesus who has given his life for you? At this Christmas season, have you lost sight of the very one we should be focusing on? Have you lost sight of that great gift of Jesus that he gave us upon the cross? Do you see with what great love he cares for you each and every day? And so if Jesus is our Lord, we must follow his example. But more than that, we can only follow his example if he is our Lord. We can't just be better. You see, in order to be true servants, we must first have surrendered ourselves to Jesus Christ. In order to truly follow Jesus' example, we must have died to ourselves, taken up our cross and followed Christ. In other words, we must first be humbled in the gospel before we are humbled to serve others. Author Donald English wrote this. He said, at the source of all Christian service in the world is the crucified and risen Lord who died to liberate us into such service. Our service within the church, folks, is only empowered by the crucified and risen Lord. It's because he served us that then we are able to serve him and serve others. And so for us to be the serving Christians and serving church that he wants us to be, we must find the power in the cross of Christ. And so I ask you this morning, have you been humbled before the cross? Have you been humbled by the gospel? Do you know Jesus in his saving power? Have you trusted and believed in him? 
Have you repented of your sin and your rebellion against Him? Or are you still clinging on to some sort of pride, some sort of righteousness that you might have? Or have you surrendered all unto Him, taken up your cross, and followed Him? He offers that forgiveness and salvation to each one of us so that once we have believed, we can then follow His example and serve others. Now, if we take Jesus' counsel, if we follow his advice and we lower ourselves and serve, we can be concerned that maybe we'll be lost to obscurity. We're going to be the youngest, we're, we're not going to be noticed, and all of that is going to be for naught. And Jesus tries to assure his disciples that this is not the case, and this is where these final verses, verses 28 through 30, come in. And the third way that Jesus uh, commends selfless sacrifice is that he rewards selfless service. He rewards selfless service. Look at verse 28 with me. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Amazingly, here Jesus moves from a statement of rebuke to a statement of commendation. He encourages his disciples here, affirming their ministry faithfulness. Again, this is only the 11 disciples who are left in the room, but he affirms their commitment. He says that they have stayed with him through his trials. They've they've continued. They've endured. Judas didn't endure, but these 11 disciples did. And so there's a sweet affirmation on the lips of Jesus. Have they been the most faithful, the most dedicated friends? No. They've been weak. They've been wishy-washy. They've been doubtful. They have sinned. They've hardly been the best and faithful ministry partners. And yet, Jesus commends them here. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And the great British commentator J.C. Ryle draws a wonderful application here for us. He says this, He says, let us rest our souls on the comfortable thought that the mind of Christ is always the same. If we are true believers, let us know that he looks at our graces more than at our faults, that he pities our infirmities, and that he will not deal with us according to our sins. Never had a master such poor, weak servants as believers are to Christ, but never had servants such a compassionate and tender master as Christ is to believers. Isn't that sweet? to remind us that Jesus is kind and compassionate to us no matter how faltering our ministry is, no matter how faltering our faith is, he is kind towards us. Well, Jesus goes on to describe the the reward that he's promised for his disciples. He says in verse 29 and 30, I assigned to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus received a kingdom The He then gives the disciples an opportunity to reign within that kingdom, and he says that they're going to sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They're going to eat and drink at his table in the kingdom. This is the great kingdom that is promised by the prophets all through the Old Testament. This is the kingdom that we still await, the kingdom known as the millennial kingdom, when Christ will return and establish his kingdom on this earth. And he says that that these disciples will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There are, this is a, a future fulfillment. We know this also from the parallel passage in Matthew 19, verse 28, where he said to his disciples, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will, who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's in the regeneration. It's in the new world 
And when he's sitting on his glorious throne, that is when the kingdom is established. That is when the disciples will sit on these 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, many expositors have, have interpreted Israel here to mean be symbolic of the church. But I profoundly disagree with this. How would the 11 disciples have understood the reference to the church? Would they have read 12 heard about 12 tribes and instantly thought of the church? What, what did Jesus mean by it? Well, they, they would have only understood it as the ethnic people of Israel. There are 70 occurrences of the word Israel in the New Testament. Each and every one of them refer to ethnic Israel. In the future kingdom, Israel is going to be restored. All Israel will be saved, Romans 11. And as the prophets foretold, and it's there that the disciples will judge over the 12 tribes of Israel. And you have to imagine this would have encouraged the, these disciples to know that their service was not overlooked, their sacrifices were not forgotten, Jesus would reward them one day. And this promise to the disciples that they will be rewarded reminds us that we too will be rewarded. He has promised that all of his elect will reign with Christ. That means you and I have a place in the kingdom of our Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2 that all the saints will judge the world. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 10 to 12, we don't have time to turn there this morning, but he says that if we, if we endure then we will reign with Christ. Folks, Jesus will reward us. He sees each and every bit of service that we offer unto him. He will not forget about us. And even though we go through suffering and trial, we can be comforted to know that Christ sees all. John Calvin, the reformer, when he was banished and kicked out of Geneva, kicked out of his church and kicked out of his city, he said this, he said, most assuredly, if I had merely served man, this would have been a poor recompense. But it is my happiness that I have served him who never fails to reward his servants to the full extent of his promise. And friends, we need to remember that as well. No matter what we go through here and now, Christ will always fulfill and reward his servants. And so as we pull back and look at this text, we see that are reminded that selfish ambition is a danger that's close at hand. It lurks in the waters and we must be watching out for it. But we can protect against it by following the example of Jesus our Savior. An example of selfless service. And so church, over these, these two weeks, we've looked at these two spiritual dangers which are evident in this passage as the disciples' hearts are revealed here in the upper room. Spiritual apostasy, selfish ambition. Our response, though, to seeing these two dangers should not be fear. Into anxiety, wondering, oh no, I wonder if I'm gonna, and having a fear that grips your heart. Rather, like the sea captain that we began with, we must be vigilant. That is our response. Be vigilant for these dangers. That there, we are watching for rocks in the water and that we heed the lighthouse when it shines and tells us where those dangers are. May God by his mighty power, protect us from both these dangers. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have given us your word, which is a lighthouse to us, which does remind us of what is coming. And I pray that you would help us to be alert, help each one here, Lord, to be honest, to be able to look, to see the, the roots of unbelief, the, the bits of selfish ambition that are in our hearts, that we might repent of them, that we might reject them, that we might turn and walk in the humility that you have purchased for us. And Father, may we as a church be not a place where selfish ambition grows, 
But may we, by the power of your spirit, put it to death that we might be a congregation of those who live out selfless service unto the glory of Christ's name. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, with that, I dismiss you to go in peace. May the Lord be with you this week, and we look forward to gathering next week as we celebrate on Christmas Eve. You're dismissed. <laughs>